0: let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD. Specifically, Slackware 14.2. Of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. RCS, the Revision Control System. I didn't even have it installed on my system because uh, when going through the the, the menu selections in Slackware, the installer, uh, I, I, I left it off because I just knew that I would never use it. So I had to install it, which I guess... Is a good way to just sort of remind you, dear listener, if you, if you don't know that Slackware has, well, I mean, you know, when you get Slackware off of the website, or when you got it back in 2016 or whenever 14.2 has come out, could it be 2016, 2018? Surely, when whatever year you got it, um, and it, you know, you you could download a disk image and then burn it to a disk and then install it on your computer. Or you subscribed to Slackware and they shipped you a disk at one point, which I, I, I feel like, I feel like that wasn't this time. I feel like they didn't do the, sh- the disk shipping this time around for 14.2. I could be, I could just be misremembering, or I was in New Zealand and so I, I, I felt like getting a, a disk shipped would be foolish. Either way, you get a, f- you got a physical disk, and on that disk, everything in the Slackware distribution is included. Well, these days, I think, I feel like that's less common, and you just kinda can do stuff online. And one of the things that Slackware has, I mean it's had this for a long time, but one of the things that it has is, you know, essentially everything on the disk is also on the Slackware server. Well, as long as you have a mirror uh, selected in your slash etsy slash slack package slash mirrors file, you have access to all of that stuff from the terminal. And so you can do things like slackpkg search for instance rcs and then it finds that there is an rcs-5.9.4 available and so you could say slackpkg install rcs and then it installs that package from the internet just like you might find on fedora or ubuntu or or arch or you know take your pick whatever whatever distribution there's that big mirror in the sky that that has all the software and you can pull software directly from it at a moment's notice really really convenient and i know some people might le- hear this and think yeah yeah so what it's an app store like everything has an app store but that's the thing nothing had an app store before this this is the first th- this was it the, the, linux came up with that idea of of hey let's just have the software on the same the, in the same place that you have your operating system. You get one and you get all the others from one place. It was a really kind of a brilliant idea at the time. So anyway, that's just a reminder that Slack PKG exists. RCS is a revision control system. It was an early attempt to manage shared files, uh, or more specifically, to manage how multiple people work on a shared file. And the, the fact is that Multiple people don't tend to work on the single file, and that's not exactly true in the modern day and age. We have some uh, software that allows us to both look at the same file, and we can actually change things while we're doing it. Um, and and that that has its place, certainly. Um, you know, it, it's kind of nice sometimes to go into a shared document on Etherpad or something like that, and make updates to one section while someone else is updating something else. Or you're both looking at it on your computer, and you can see the changes that the other person's making, and then you can comment you know if you're if you're on a call like a um, mumble or Jitsi call you could you can comment on things as they do it and and so on so there there's a space for that, but you know for a lot of times um that's not the model it's just you want to work on a thing and develop a feature or you know flesh out a section of a of a thing that you're collaborating on and there's no intention of having the other person work at the same time on the same file, and certainly that's the model that we use for Git and Mercurial and um, Fossil and RCS, as it turns out. Now, RCS does it a little bit differently. Well, I say it does it a bit differently, it's, it's different to what I am used to, and I'm used to Git. That's how I got started with version control. That was the first, and for a very long time, the only version control system I ever really experienced. I think I might have accidentally checked something out from SVN, you know, once or twice, not really accidentally, but you know, sometimes there's a a copy and paste command on the internet that says, to access this thing, do this, and so you copy the SVN command, SVN space CO space whatever, and then next thing you know, you've got all the files. You don't know why you had to do that or what you just did, but you did it. So Git was the one that I truly understood, the, the one that I started out with and for me that's the gold standard like that's normal Git is the normal way of doing things and Git specifically is famously a decentralized system we tend to forget that sometimes because even in a de- decentralized system there tends to be a a maintainer at the top of the pyramid there's there's someone with whom the buck stops someone has to say this commit is getting in and merged and this one is not so there is a sense that eventually it becomes centralized after it gets filtered through you know enough of the enough of the bottlenecks or enough of the funnel it, it filters down to someone who could be con- considered the the central authority but the difference is is quite i think quite clear with rcs and so if you if you like me know git better than other systems and aren't really too sure on how it is decentralized well r c s may well explain that to you very clearly so i'm going to make a directory and i'll call it um my dash r c s dash demo and i'll change directory into my RCS-demo, and I'll, I guess I'll just make a Hello World application of some sort. Where's a good Hello World? I think I have, here's one. Uh, here's a hello.java, and I'll copy that here. I'll run hello.java, give it a moment to compile itself, and it says Hello World. Okay, cool. So that is a functional, not that it needs to be functional, but it's a functional Hello World application, and I can do things with that by the way, I, I, I did think to do an RCS and Ruby thing. Ruby is the next package we're going to be talking about. I thought, oh, you know what I could do is just do a Ruby tutorial and manage that tutorial with RCS, and then I realized that that would really be conflating things that had no business being sort of put together, so I, I, I'm, I refrained from doing that. Okay, so I've got this file, hello.java, and let's just assume for the moment that we're collaborating with someone else on this. And so the, the, I guess I would be in this model, I would be the systems, well no, actually I'd be a lot of different things. So anyway, this is, this. we're going to turn this into an RCS repository, a revision control, something that is being controlled by RCS. And let's see, that would be um, to, to, so the first step in an RCS system is to check a file in. Now notice I haven't done anything fancy like RCS init or anything like that. It's just you, you're I'm in a directory and I can invoke the powers of RCS. That's all it takes. I don't have to sort of bless this directory as an RCS repository as a separate step, which you do have to do for Git and as I recall Mercurial, So and certainly with Fossil. So that's a difference to note and the way that I'll check this file in is the command CI, which, is, which stands for check in. So I'm going to CI space hello.java. Now, it tells me a couple of things in the output. It says hello.java, comma, v, as in victor, and it points to that saying hello.java. And then it says enter description terminated with a single dot or end of file. Note... This is not the log message. So I will put in um, added hello.java return, and then just on a single line, a dot, and it tells me that this is the initial revision, 1.1, and that it's done. And now if I do an ls in this directory, hello.java is kind of gone in a way. Uh, And instead I see a uh, a file called hello.java comma, v as in victor so i'm going to look at this location in dolphin and yeah that's that's what it that's what it looks like so there's a file and it's just called the same thing as the thing that was called hello.java except it's got a comma v next to it so i could do for instance a emacs hello.java,v, and I see that this is not the file that I expected. So instead, it starts with head 1.1, semicolon, access, semicolon, symbols, semicolon, locks, semicolon, strict, semicolon, comment, uh, and then it tells me the date, and the author, and the branches, and that it added hello.java. That's my little uh, description. Uh, The log is that this is the initial revision. And then there's a text section that does contain the contents of the the file. So, in other words, it's taken my file and kind of consumed it and put a bunch of metadata into the same space. And isn't that surprising? Well, it's not so surprising. This um, This is now a... I mean, this is being managed by rcs if i want to use that file uh then i need to check it out from rcs and furthermore i have to check it out with, with and and put and place a lock on it so the command to do that is co as in check out and then dash l as in lock and i think it has to just be dash l, I don't think there's any kind of, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no long option, you can't do co dash dash lock, that doesn't exist, so it's just dash l to lock, and then the name of the file that you want to check out, or rather the, the name of the entity that contains that file, so hello.java comma v, and now if I do an ls and it tells me even so it says hello.java v and it's got a little arrow pointing to hello.java so it's almost as as if though it has taken that file and sort of expanded it from a, an archive and if you do an ls then you see now you have two uh entities well files i guess is to be fair in your current directory one is called hello.java v and the other is called hello.java which of course is the actual file, so if I do an emacs hello.java, rather than having it say hello world, let's have it say hello two. save that change, and you can probably see where I'm going with this, possibly the next step is to check in hello.java. And again, it prompts me for a description, so I will say that uh, changed world to 2 return, and then a dot on its own line. And now if I do an ls in my current directory, I have hello.java, v that as my only file in the directory. As you can imagine, if I do a co... Actually, here's what I'll do. I'll do a co to check out, but I'm not going to place a lock on it. I'm just going to do co and uh, hello.java, v. So this time it, it expands it out to hello.java, Tells me that the revision is now 1.2, and I could do a hello, emacs hello.java, but I find that the file is write protected. I I cannot, I can't add anything in Emacs, it just won't let me. And if I do an ls l, it looks like hello.java is read, read, read. No writing, no executing, it's just read. So is the comma v. So It's imposed some protections there. I'm going to check it back in, hello.java, do an ls, and it didn't check that back in. Okay, that's fine. Well, I think I'll do a trash hello.java to get rid of that file that I didn't really need, I guess, and then I'll check it out again with a lock this time. So co for checkout-l hello.java. Sure enough, that that checks it back out and it is now if i do an ls-l again it is writable by me by the uh, user if i do a checkout-l again without without checking it back in it warns me there's a writable hello.java in this directory do you want to remove it so i'll say yes to that and now i've still got hello.java uh let me just let's let's see what happens if i go into hello.java put a bunch of random characters in it, and then do the checkout again. Okay, so it it again prompts me to remove the existing file and replace it with whatever i'm checking out so as you can kind of tell this is like a this is very much to me like an archive like a tarball and you can keep taking a copy out of that tarball sort of mess it up do whatever you want to try some things and if you hate what you've done you can just take out a fresh copy and start over if you like what you've done you can check it back in and and now that's the official version of that file it's kind of cool um there are some helper uh commands like rcs diff. So for instance if I go into hello.java again with Emacs, and instead of cl2, I'll change this to Gort. And now if I do an RCS diff of hello.java, it shows it, it knows what file I want to diff it against. So it looks at the at whatever's in the tank, whatever's in the the archive the hello.java comma v and it looks at what's different in the file that has been checked out and in this case it finds the difference between hello two and hello gort it shows me that in a, a fairly typical uh diff syntax not the unified syntax but the the other uh, the default syntax and so now i know where the differences are what the differences are so that's kind of cool, and then there's also should you ever get and and you can specify too like if you know what revision you want to get the diff bet- like if you if you decide well what i really wanted the diff between was hello dot java version dot one dot one then you can specify that with r c. s diff dash r one dot one dash r one dot what are we on? Two. Hello dot Java. And now I'm comparing the the one dot one version which said hello world to uh the the new version or the the latest checked in version which says hello two. Um how do I There we go. No no revision for the second one. So RCS diff dash r one dot one and then just hello dot java, that's the current version. So now it sees the difference between hello world and hello gr- gort. So you you can kind of introspect and look back across the versions just like you can in Git. And uh, then what? Oh yeah, the other one was the dash U uh, for RCS, which is kind of nifty, but I don't really have a great way to d- demonstrate it. But let's say you're in a scenario where someone has checked out a file, and they haven't checked it back in, so there's a lock on the file you can't get to that file actually you know what i could do no no i couldn't never mind um i was going to say i could log in on my laptop and try to check the file out but i don't in order to do that i would have to ssh into this desktop and then as far as the desktop knows i'm the same user so that that doesn't really work um and that's fine. Point being, let's say you've, you're working on a file. Someone's checked a file out, but they have not checked it in. You have an urgent need to revise that file or... Well, yeah, I guess it would be... Because you can check it out anytime, but you you want to check it out with a lock. You want to steal the lock from someone. I mean, obviously, it's a dangerous thing to do, and that's essentially going to be a merge, probably a merge collision on you know the next day when the, a person comes back and has their file that's had changes to it. Now you've got your copy of the file, you've stolen the lock, you've made changes. Now you've got a three-way collision because you got the original file and then two different revisions. So you'll have to resolve the two revisions and then merge it with the, the upstream or the, the main trunk, whatever, the main branch, whatever it's called in RCS. But you can do it if, if you need to. And the way that you do that is RCS, the actual just RCS command, RCS-U... Hello. Java that steals the lock from whoever has it, grants you the the lock, and then you can check out or you can make your uh, edits and then check your your file back in, or or leave it on your computer and and wait for the next person to discover that someone else has the lock, and then you know coordinate on how you're going to resolve the the almost certain merge conflict. I think that's pretty much all I had to say about RCS. To be honest, let's see if there's a couple of other commands here. Oh, there are. Okay, I guess that's not all I have to say. Though That's the that's the stuff that really matters, though, I feel. But there are a couple of other commands. I don't know how... I mean, honestly, not even all of them work. So, for inst- or for me, anyway, I'm sure they work. I just don't know how to use them. So there's ident, I-D-E-N-T. The documentation uh, sort of says ident invoking ident if no file specified scan standard input the ident command scans its input for keywords and then it refers you over to concepts to to read about concepts concepts in the section 1.2.5 keywords says keywords and their values are author date header id locker log all of these sound vaguely familiar to me uh, oh, and name RCS file revision source state. So all of that sounds vaguely familiar to me when I had looked at the comma v file, because there is, in fact, author clat2 um, for the revision, uh, where else there was log. I think that was one of them, wasn't it? Maybe not. Uh, th- there were a couple a couple of things that sort of seemed like they would be keywords, but if I do ident hello.java, comma v, it tells me that there's no ID keywords in v. So I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to be running ident against. Maybe that's my mistake. Maybe there's some other file that I'm supposed to be looking at. But the documentation doesn't seem to really um, tell me what that is. It doesn't tell me what the expected input is. So I, I don't know where to go from there. So that one's kind of a bust. That was ident. Merge. As you can imagine, merge is kind of an important one. Um, merge does resolve differences in, you know, that merge conflict that I described. If you've broken the lock on a file and need to to help resolve two separate revisions that, that conflict with one another, then you can use the merge command. Well, at least that's the theory. I don't love this merge command because I feel like compared to GIT's merge um, resolution, I feel like this is a little bit, well, weak, to be honest. So the, the merge just automatically fails if the same line has changed in two files. Now this is for specifically for three-way merges because of the situation I described earlier where someone has checked out a file but has not yet checked it back in. So you've got the the gold image of the file as it is in the revision Locked away, or, uh, yeah, in the archive, in the revision control system. Someone has a copy of it on their machine. You now have a copy of it on your machine. You've made changes. We have to assume the other person has made changes. Three files now. Gold image, two revisions. The, by, uh, by default, merge the command from RCS. Merge assumes that f- the, the first file you provide, file one, on, in your command, because you're going to do merge, file one, file two, file three. So the first one that you that you reference is the one that is considered the destination. The second and the third are the revisions. So that's gold image revision one, revision two, essentially. But they in the man page, it's file one, file two, file three. If I've changed, if if I have three v- instances of the line "hello world", "hello gort", and "hello clatu", this merge automatically fails. Uh, it states merge warning conflicts during merge. Well, I mean, that's exactly what I would expect um, is a conflict. That's why I'm using merge. So that doesn't work, and then essentially you have to go in and resolve that, the, those conflicts yourself separately. In a different application, whereas what I'm used to in Git is, if there are conflicts, it, it marks those conflicts in a in a file that contains the the portions that that have changed, and you go in with a text editor and delete the stuff you don't want, keep the, uh, leave the stuff that you do want, and then you you continue your merge. It's pretty simple. It's a little bit funky if you're not used to it, because you've got all this new content in a file, and that's a little bit scary. But, I mean, once you whittle it back down, it, it, it sort of feels pretty natural. Well, that's not what this command is for. So, the I guess the, the problem isn't the command, it's the expectation that's been set by something else, and this command happens to use the same terminology. So, I thought it was going to help me resolve merge conflicts, when, in reality, it is essentially patch. I don't know why merge exists and patch exists. I would... I, I feel... In this modern day and age, I would just use diff and patch, and I wouldn't use merge, which is a a great reason for me not having this installed on my system, I guess. Um, Okay, so RCS clean, cleans up working files. Specifically, it removes files that aren't being worked on. So if I, I I actually have a pretty messy um, workspace here at this very moment. So I'm going to clear things up myself first, and then I'm going to check out, without a lock, Hello.java, comma v, and now if I do an RCS clean, it removes Hello.java because it wasn't. I had checked it out without a lock, so therefore I am I'm not making any changes to it, so it should be safe to get rid of. And indeed, I think it arguably is. It's it's a little bit dangerous, but you know what? It's always dangerous to get rid of files. You know that's always a scary thing. So unless you're running ZFS, um, so. That's that's just something that you're doing, and um, RCS clean gets rid of them. I would would I prefer it to, I don't know, move them somewhere off to the side or something? Maybe I don't know. Um, and and certainly let's let's do a checkout again without a lock. It's not the right terminal window though. Checkout hello.java, and then I'll go into hello.java, and I'll just add some random text in the file can't, because it's locked. So now I'll check it out, and add some random text in the file, and then I'll do an RCS clean, and it doesn't get rid of that. So it it knows better than, you know, like, it's only going to get rid of something that is being managed by, in in fact, I guess that's one more thing to try. So I'll check it out with a lock again, and then I'm going to just touch foo.txt, Now if I do an RCS clean, it it, again, it doesn't get rid of anything, because the stuff that's in my working directory is either stuff that's not being managed by RCS, or stuff that is being managed by RCS, and has a lock applied to it. So, in other words, RCS clean gets rid of stuff that RCS knows about, and can see that you don't even have the ability to change anyway. So I guess no, it's not very scary to get rid of those files at all. That's RCS clean. That seems pretty useful. I do sometimes kind of wish that Git had something like that, although I don't know what that would look like in Git because that model is very different. Um, so I don't I don't know how that would sort of work, really. Um, okay, so now RCS merge. It merges RCS revisions. So RCS merge... Looks at two different revisions of, of your repository, of your version control, and it squashes them, essentially. That's kind of the way that I would think about it. It, it takes the, the differences between two revisions and then unites them. I don't know how often that would be useful. It, it seems I'm, I'm, I struggle, and maybe this is because I've never used this thing in real life and, and then only have used it for, you know, pretend. Um, for this past week. I, I'm just struggling to find, to, to, to sort of think of when you would need that. I guess maybe if you'd gone into a revision and removed some stuff, and then you were revising some more, you know, so you checked that in with the removal, and then you revised some more, and you realized, oh, I shouldn't have really taken that that function out. But I know that that function still exists in uh, 1.2. Here I am on, you know, 1.9. So why don't I just resurrect 1.2. I don't know, it just seems a little bit weird to me. But I guess it's possible. Possible for that to be necessary. And then finally, our log is um, the way that you can view the logs of your RCS. This obviously just parses the hello.java,v file and kind of formats it nicely and just shows you the log entries. So in this particular example, I see revision 1.1 at the very bottom of my screen gives me the date, it gives me the author, gives me a little log message. Revision 1.2, locked by cla2, the date, the author, another little log um, message, and that's it. That's all I've done so far, so that's all that it has it. But um, yeah, that's pretty useful. Uh, Pretty much what you would expect. That's, again, our log. And with that, I believe I'm finished with RCS, so I'm going to do a slack... PKG, remove RCS. It opens up a screen to confirm that that's something that I actually want to do, and I confirm that it is, and RCS is back off my system. That doesn't mean, don't mistake the swiftness for which I did that, with disdain. I really find RCS charming, and that probably sounds a little bit um, condescending, but it, it really is I, you know, I think if we put ourselves back I don't know five ten years ago twenty years ago whatever I don't know when r c s was invented but um you know if you if you think about sort of the the most obvious way to make this system safe and workable this system being okay we have we've got a set of files here that it's modular code so you know we've got different classes and different files and functions and different files and so on so it's There's a bunch of stuff to work on. It's probably pretty reasonable to imagine that the collaborators are going to each be working on their own stuff, mostly. How can we just make sure that everyone can grab the files that they need for the day or for the hour or whatever, and just no one else can grab those files? Just some kind of notation so that people don't accidentally stomp all over each other's work. I, I can imagine this is exactly the system... I would have come up with this is a really practical and understandable method uh, one of the one of the tutorials i saw when i was figuring all this stuff out i mean there's not a whole lot to figure out it's a very simple system but one of the tutorials i saw online from where was this thing i don't really remember where it was from it's like from a, it was a university if you do like rcs tutorial you'll you'll see it there it is actually uh it is from uh toronto toronto uh One of the one of the analogies, I think it was this one. Yes, it was. Is RCS functions like a car rental agency? One only one person at a time can actually rent a particular car and drive it off the lot. A new car can only be rented after the agency has added it to their their pool. So, you know, checking in a file is you adding a car, a rental car, to your to your lot. When someone checks it out and and puts a lock on to it that's when someone has rented a car and has driven it off the lot it is no longer there it's such a an obvious and and simple concept to understand and i really really like it i think it's it's um it's a beautiful simple elegant solution to something that we all run up to uh, run up against at some point whenever you're collaborating with someone this th- this is a, a potential problem now there have been more interesting solutions to this now um, but I don't know I think there's an argument here that this is something that that one could reasonably use in certain situations if if one didn't want to get into uh questions of of learning git and so on now one would still have to design us the 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 back end this you know if you've got rcs that's great but now where are you using rcs i mean there's not like an rcs lab or an rcs hub online there's you know there's you would have to design the back end for this so that your collaborators all have access to literally the same server and can go in there and have you know some some shared storage space where all the users have access to and they can check things out and so on so i think there's a little bit of uh, some coordination that would have to happen there i, I would i would imagine but once you got that figured out and and depending on your setup, I mean that might just be a very natural thing to have available anyway uh, once you had that figured out though the 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 system the r c s system it's really easy it is just so intuitive in a way. you just know that if you want something, you have to check it out with a lock if you when you're finished with it, remember to check it back in, and if you don't, then you get to figure out all the different ways that files that have been changed by two different people can be merged back into something that can then be uh, checked in. So that's RCS. Really, really cool. A lot of fun. You should try it out, or or think about it, at least, because, uh, like I say, it it is quite elegant. I I, I was impressed. I, I had a really good time with it. A lot more fun with RCS than I had with, say, Subversion or CVS. Did I even bother doing CVS? I don't even remember. But yeah, RCS, I, I genuinely enjoyed. You know what else I'm going to genuinely enjoy? That's right, coffee. Go get yourself some, genuinely enjoy it, and then we'll come back for Ruby. <laughs> back, I've got coffee, and I have Ruby. Ruby has been around for a while, and for whatever reason I never really gave it a whole lot of thought. I did have a book about it, and and I learned it a little bit very, very early on. It was positioned at the time, so it, it came out in 1995, I think, and it was positioned, when I encountered it back in, I, I guess it would have been 2006, seven, eight, that time range, uh, it was positioned as a competitor, I guess, to Python. I mean, heck, everything is a competitor to Python, right? I mean, Python is one of the ruling champs of programming, so it isn't surprising that something would be a, quote, competitor, close quote, to Python, because that's just where, that's where things are. So if you're looking to learn programming then one of the things you're going to hear about obviously is python and then another thing at the time i think you would have heard about would have been ruby and ever since about 2004 or so there was a pretty well around the 2004 to probably i don't know 2010 2012 time frame there was a sort of a big surge i feel like in ruby because of ruby on rails and it's funny cuz i read about that as I was exploring Ruby recently, and I realized that that was a term I hadn't heard in such a long time now. You know, it was just one of those things that just... You used to never be able... you. Ruby on Rails is something you would always hear. There was always an on-rails something. Ruby on Rails conference. Ruby on Rails talk at at a conference that you were at. Ruby on Rails job posting. It was just, it was everywhere. And I haven't heard it in ages. Um, That's not to say that it isn't still being used... Or that it's not popular anymore. I don't know. I don't. I don't have the numbers. I'm just saying that that was something you used to hear a lot, and now I don't feel like I hear that so much anymore. But Ruby, I know, is quite popular, and well, it is. It is quite important. It, it is still being used in in many places, and and it's being used for a lot of online services and and applications that that people interact with over a network. So. Yeah, I, I know of a couple of major projects written in Ruby. And and so it, it's you know, it's a flexible and robust little language and it's it's relatively simple to learn. It has a same the same kind of simplified syntax as something like Python might have, and, and there are actually a lot of similarities to Lua as well. So might as well start talking about how things are done in Ruby, and the first thing you ought to know about is the Interactive Ruby console, or whatever they call it, IRB is what it's called, IRB version, doesn't tell me anything if I do an, man, I, Interactive Ruby shell, IRB, IR, Interactive Ruby B, okay, whatever, um, so if you type in IRB, you get a prompt, IRB main, zero, zero, one, colon, zero. And you can issue Ruby commands, which you don't know of any yet, but we could do. So uh, how about puts, quote, hello, world, close quote. And it prints out hello, world, and nil, and then gives you a new prompt, as zero, zero, two, colon, zero. So puts, P-U-T-S, is the Ruby equivalent of a print statement. So in Python, you might do print, parentheses, Quote, hello world, close parentheses, return, and it would echo back to you, hello world. In Ruby, you just puts, puts, hello world. No parentheses required, I, I don't even think parentheses would work. Let's try it really quick. Uh, it does work, actually. So puts, parentheses, quote, hello, close, cl- quote, close parentheses does actually work. Um, but apparently it's not required. So... Um, puts, that's a pretty obvious and easy one to remember. Math is about as easy as it is in Python. Three plus three returns six. So that little nil after puts hello world, or puts whatever, um, nil means that it's returned nothing. It is, it's returned zero, it's returned nil. And that's, uh, simply because that particular Statement that that function returns zero when it's when it when it returns a value to you, uh, and that's not super important necessarily, um, but it is something um, that kind of indicates some of that back end technology. So, for instance, so puts apparently I would I would think is a a, a like a a class or a, a a function or a method or whatever. Uh, that that is returning void, returning nil. You can make your own functions, as you might expect. So if we do def hello, uh, hi, def hi, and then return, and then we put, puts hello there, close quote, and then the keyword end, E-N-D, just like in Lua, it returns uh, colon hi, and that's just its rather um, terse way of saying that you've completed the definition of a function with def define hi so we've defined high now so how could we execute high as you can imagine we can just type in high and it echoes back out to us hello there you can also uh, put hi parentheses parentheses and it returns hello there so already i think we're seeing a little bit of um well what do you want to call it inconsistency or flexibility so obviously the puts statement works just as well with or without the parentheses my high function works just as well with or without parentheses which one is it well it's both it doesn't care whether you use parentheses or not it, it knows what you mean it knows it, it it's flexible enough to um to use either of those those things um, whether or not you know you, you you like that or not is a completely different matter um, i think some people would probably not like that because it is inconsistent while other people would really quite like that because it is it's flexible i think i i definitely lean towards the flexibility but in practice i can definitely see myself choosing one and and standardizing for me on that convention because certainly you know when you're doing find and replaces or or you're you're grepping through your code for some kind of mention of a thing You want them to be consistently written so that you can find every single mention. You don't want to have to write regex to figure out whether or not you had you you followed that you followed a a function with a parenthesis on that particular instance or not. So functions also get values. They can get that you can pass arguments to to functions. So I'm going to make an another function called def high and I'm going to place into the little parameter box, or the, the parentheses. So def high parentheses, and then I'll do name, and then I'm going to give it a default value, and this is really cool. So I'm going to put name equals world, close parentheses. So that's def, def for define, def space high parentheses name equals world, close parentheses. And all that's saying is that I want to be able to accept a variable called name whenever, some, when it, whenever something calls hi I want them to be able to give me a variable which I'll call name because I don't know what it's going to be so I'll just call it name for now oh and if they don't give me anything at all I'll place the word world into my name variable so name just automatically becomes world just in case someone decides not to provide me with a, a value for name and then I'm gonna do puts and I'm gonna use the parentheses. Quote, hello, this is is where it gets a little bit weird. So I'm gonna do a hash curly brace, name, close curly brace, close quote, close parentheses. So the hash curly brace, name curly brace, that's the way that you unpack, as it were, a variable. So someone has called my high function, They've given me a name, or they haven't. Either way, there's this variable now, and it's called name. We don't know what's in it. It's either world or something else that someone's given me. But when I say hello, when I print that hello message, I want to make sure that I'm not going to print literally the word name. I want to print whatever's inside of name. And the way that you do that, the the, the, the way that you open up a variable and look inside and extract its contents is a hash uh, curly brace, the name of the variable, the, the term, of the, the, the label that you've given that variable, which in this case is literally name, N-A-M-E, and then a curly brace. I say that's a little bit weird because, well, first of all, if you've never done that sort of thing, that's completely new to you, but um, if you have done that sort of thing, you might have done it in bash, and you know that in bash it's a dollar sign and then the, the term. Or if you're... If you're, if you're particular, you might do something like, quote, dollar sign, curly brace, blah, curly brace, quote, close quote, to kind of protect the the contents of the variable. But point is, the dollar sign kind of indicates, hey, this is a variable. And we saw that in Perl as well, that dollar sign or that at symbol for different kinds of, of, of entities. In Ruby, it's it's the hash symbol, which feels a little bit weird to me, because the hash symbol in Ruby also denotes a comment. So I could just do hash this is a comment and i've just i've just written a you know a useless throwaway line because it started with a hash symbol it just feels weird to me to use hash for both a comment and to unpack a variable i'm not saying it's horribly egregious but i do feel like it's a little bit weird myself it could be that in a way hash if if a variable is empty then a hash in front of that variable would return nothing anyway so it would almost be like a comment if there was nothing in there and if there is anything in there then you can extract it of course i don't know what you would do if you for some reason made a comment that also was structured as a variable that was actually a valid variable that would be weird but anyway that's that's how you do it in ruby it's a hash i i think it feels a little bit weird to use your comment symbol as your as your variable unpacking symbol But there you go. So I'm going to type in, um, I'm going to type in high, I guess just high, and uh, that didn't work. Did not work. What did I do wrong? I know what I did wrong. Okay, so I'm going to go up. I'm going to do name equals quote world, close quote. So that's def high, parentheses, name equals quote world, close quote, parentheses, and then puts oops, puts hello hash curly brace name, and then end. And now I'm gonna type in hi. And there we go, hello world. Um, and, Or I could just do hi parentheses quote, clatu close quote, close parentheses, and now I get hello clatu. Or I could do hi parentheses quote Gort, close quote, glo, cl- close parentheses, and I get hello Gort, and you get the idea. So that's what a function does, you can pass an argument to the function, and it assigns that argument to a variable of your choosing. And then you can use that variable in your function and get different results. I mean, that's, that's the power of a function. That's exactly what, that's what we want a function to do. That's kind of the very mathematical definition of a function. You know, you've got your inputs and an output, and depending on what you put in, you get a, a, a predictable output something that you'll know what that will be. There are string modifiers in Ruby, just as you would expect. So if I rewrote my high definition, I could do def, or my function def high name equals quote world close quote, and then instead of just puts hello hash semi, or not semi, curly brace name, I could also do, um, I could do, like, name.capitalize, capital, oops, capitalize, end, and so now if I do hello world, I see that the W is is capitalized, or I could do, um, something easy to see that it's not capital, how about something T, how about just a bunch of T's, and there's capital T at the the start of my hello T, 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 T. So that's probably relatively familiar to you if you've ever used, uh, well, certainly Python um, or or Java, that this is a pretty standard sort of way of of modifying things. A dot and then the name of some other function that, that acts upon that entity. And boy, you know, can I just pause for a moment and say that it is so nice not to have to worry about indentation In in a language that feels, I think, very much in in a good way, like Python, and yet there's there's no complaints about indentation. I once again, I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again, can't believe Python didn't at least provide an optional keyword or an optional structure to open or to close um clauses uh, statements with something other than indentation so if you're writing in ruby and you i don't know copy and paste it into some uh, chat application or into another document and and for whatever reason your copy and your paste thing didn't really talk it out in advance and all your indentation is gone or you're looking at ruby code and you're, you're you know and it's printed out on um on paper or something you're looking at it you, you can't count the spaces because you can't see the spaces. Well, it doesn't matter in Ruby, because you don't need to know them. As long as you, when you open something, like a, a function, def, whatever, quote, uh, parentheses, parentheses, some code, the word end, E-N-D, end. Now your statement is, cl- your, your your thing is closed, your code block is closed. The scope has been shut off, and the next code that you write after that is no longer within that, def, whatever, is so, so simple, and really, really refreshing. I just, once again, can't believe Python didn't come up with at least an optional method for that very thing in Python 3. I really, really wish it had. I think that would have been a, a very pleasant thing to, to try. Okay, so anyway, let's do a class, because classes are always important. A class in programming is a template, That's, I think, the the best way to think of it. So, it's kind of an important concept in object-oriented programming. And Ruby, um... I don't know, doing a, a little class in Ruby, I think, will be kind of enlightening, because you learn stuff when you do that. So, just off the top of my head here, we'll create a little, not a game, but an interface for a game, and... or something that references a game. So I'm going to start the line with the usual shebang line, so that's hash, exclamation mark, forward slash, user, slash, bin, slash, env, space, ruby. And we'll create a class first. So we'll call it class, character. And I guess in a lot of languages, ruby included as far as I can tell, the a class gets um, an init cap. So it's class, space, capital C, and the normal h-a-r-a-c-t-e-r class character. Uh, Now that the class exists, oh, I'm going to actually, now that the class has been typed, I'm going to type the word end, and that way I don't forget to close it later. And in fact, I might go so far as to type end space hash class, and that way I remember, when I'm looking through the code, what that end actually, what its partner is, and in this case, It's the thing that opened the scope of this code block was class, and the thing that closes it is end, E-N-D. Okay, so a class exists, and when a class, like I said, a class is a template. So you're going to be using a class to create an object, fake software object, that looks exactly like this class. Well, the class is completely empty right now, so that's a weird thing to aspire to. Well, let's give it some let's let's put some code into this class, so that when we make an instance of this class, when we use this as a template, there will actually be something applied to our new object. That starts necessarily with a function, and the first function that gets automatically executed when you use a class is called initialize. That's what it's called in Ruby, I mean. So def space initialize, and then parentheses, and then whatever you want to import into this method, into this function. So that would be, in this case, name, comma, role, comma, level, LVL. And then I'm going to type end again with my little comment, and I'm going to just type hash init, and that way I know what that particular end is closing. So I've got this function named initialize. What we'll do is we'll assume that someone is creating a character for this game, And they've given us a name, and a role, and a level. Now what they can't give us is how many health points they get, because we want to decide that. That's part of the game, let's say. So we'll do HP for health points, equals r-a-n-d, rand. As you might imagine, that's a function built into Ruby that provides a random number. So I'm doing rand, parentheses, uh, I don't know, let's do eight, close parentheses, The problem with that is that, well, the problem for my game and that, is that rand starts at 0 and goes up to but not including the number that you put in here. So I could either, we've seen this before, I think this happened in the Lisp uh, demo that I did, I could either make, I could bump that up to 9, or I could leave it at 8 and do a plus 1 at the end. So I'm going to do that because uh, in my imaginary game system here, 8 would be tied to an eight sided die and seeing eight says something to me whereas seeing nine well there is no nine sided die that that I have that I'm aware of um, so it would be that that would be a little bit confusing so I'm going to do HP equals rand parentheses eight close parentheses plus one that way if I ever roll if I ever get a random number of zero it'll it'll be at least one and if I get the maximum value of seven then it'll be actually the maximum value of 8, which is my intention. Okay, so that's just setting the health points of my character. Let's give um, the character some spells. Uh, Let's pretend like this game, everyone has spells in this game. So we're going to give them a list of spells. Now, um, because this is a variable, you might think I would write spells equals and then the name of the spells or something. But this is a variable that I want to be able to pass to a different function. So I'm going to put an at symbol in front of spells. At, symbol, uh, at spells equals, and then I'm going to make a list, or actually an array, um, and that's done with square brackets. So at spells equals square bracket, quote, cantrip. It's a nice little simple spell, like lighting a candle you know, with a snap or something like that. It's just a little trivial spell. Comma, quote, chill touch. It's a necromantic spell. Causes someone to take cold damage. Uh, comma, quote, detect undead. Everybody needs to know when there are undead zombies or vampires around. Uh, close square bracket. So they've got three spells to start with, no matter what. All the characters get those three spells. And to communicate this to the player, we'll do a puts parentheses quote you are now we know this so we've got a bunch of variables we know how to call variables hash curly brace curly brace i'm just gonna copy that and then in the curly brace i'll put name so you are name comma a level hash curly bracket lvl close curly bracket and then hash curly bracket roll Close curly bracket. Close quote. Close parentheses. So when someone, well, we'll see what happens. So that's our that's our class. That's our yeah that's our class so far. Now if I save this and go out to my terminal, I'll chmod plus x what I've called games.rb. And now if I do a dot slash games.rb, nothing happens. Why doesn't anything happen? Well, it nothing's happening because nothing is actually calling this class to action I've defined a class but I haven't actually used the class that's the same thing that would happen with a hello world application if you if you put hello world in a function and then never actually called the function so at the bottom of the file here I'm going to do if underscore underscore file underscore underscore equals equals dollar sign zero then that syntax i don't love but it's better than the python version and it is it is expressing that if the meta built-in variable called underscore underscore file underscore underscore is equal to the thing that has been executed then do some stuff meaning that this triggers only if you're executing this file as a standalone file if this file is getting called from another file like imported then it doesn't it this wouldn't get triggered because then it's acting like a library but in this case if we're triggering it with the file itself then it knows that that's this is an important that that we expect that we're interactively using this and we expect output okay so i'm gonna create a uh, an instance of the class, and the way that I'm going to do that is PC1 equals character with capital C dot new parentheses uh, quote Bob close quote comma quote wizard close quote comma one close parentheses. Those are, you'll notice, a name, a role, and a level Bob wizard one. Now, in real life, of course, this would be a silly way to write a program, because you wouldn't want your pro, your your program to have hard-coded a name and a, a role and a level, because then everyone who plays your game would always be named Bob, they would always be a wizard, and they would always start out at level 1. Well, level 1 probably is a reasonable place to start, but um, point being... That's a little bit of a weird way to do it, but let's go with it for now, and maybe later we can make it so that on the terminal, when you're typing in the command to run the game, you can also provide a name, a, a role, and a level. I might not get to that that far, but um, you know that that's how you would do it. For testing, hard-coding it is pretty pretty reasonable. Okay, so I've saved that. I've got my class, I've got that initialize function, and then I've got a place that detects that, yep, this is being... Launched as a, a file. The, the file itself is being launched as the main executable, so we're treating it as if though this is the only this is the only file in the whole application. All right. So out of my terminal, I'm going to chmod plus x games.rb, and then I'm going to do a dot slash games.rb, and I get a little message that says you are Bob. A level one wizard. well, that makes sense because PC was named Bob and he's playing the role of wizard and he's level one. all right so let's go back in here to our game and let's make it a little bit more complex. The way that we can make it a little more complex is that we can add another function and the function that I'm going to add is uh, DF list spells. I don't need an argument for this. So I'm just going to do parentheses, parentheses. I'll type in an end with a little comment that says list. And then in that function, I'm going to put, I'm going to type the word puts, parentheses, quote, hash, curly brace, at, spells, close curly brace, close quotes, close parentheses. And you'll remember that in that initialize function i created a variable with the at symbol in front of it and now i'm referencing that here in my other function with the at spells so that at symbol you can think of it almost as a little tag or a portal that makes it extend beyond the scope in which it was created so it was created in the initialize function, and then there was an end statement. That means anything outside, anything beyond that end statement shouldn't know that spells exist. But because we put the at symbol in front of it, we can reference it from another function without having to, like, I don't know, bring it out and put it back in and, and reference it, do anything weird like that. So it's kind of a little bit little bit of magic being applied there. Uh, it, that is a little bit like uh, the this keyword in Java, or the, or is, what is it in Python? I've almost forgotten, self, self in Python. Um, it's just the at symbol in Ruby. It's kind of elegant, kind of cool. Uh, let's see, so now we could do something else. So in our uh, main, in the main body of our, of our application where we're just testing it, we're hard coding stuff that in, in reality we would want the player to be able to choose, but this is just testing stuff. So we've created a copy of this character class, and we've named that copy... PC for player character, cause I wrote PC equals character dot new Bob Wizard One. So PC, for all intents and purposes, is Bob Wizard One. So I don't I don't reference character anymore. I reference the 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 thing that has been created with the character template, which again is called PC, cause I called it that. I could call it anything. I could call it player equals character dot new Bob Wizard One. I could call it whatever, penguin, whatever. Um, But I'm gonna just PC, because it's short. So when I wanna do something again with PC, I can now just reference PC directly. So I'm gonna do, and this again is under the if underscore underscore file underscore underscore equals dollar sign zero, uh, PC equals character new bob wizard one. Now I'm gonna do PC dot list spells, parentheses parentheses. Save that, go back out to my terminal, dot slash games dot rb and i get a new message i get you are bob a level one wizard and then i get a list of my spells cantrip chill touch detect undead it's perfect that's exactly what i needed to know and we could do more we could do yet more so let's say that for instance um we want to give our character our player the ability to cast a spell we could make a new function and that'll be def space spell cast parentheses n, as in number, and you'll see why in a moment. I'm gonna do puts parentheses quote you cast hash curly brace at symbol spells square bracket n close square bracket close curly brace close quote close parentheses. So if you catch it there, I'm referencing the spells array, but I'm saying only select the nth entry in that array. And then I'm gonna do dice, equals rand parentheses 20 close parentheses plus 1 so I'm having essentially the computer roll a 20-sided die for me but since Ruby starts at zero and goes in this case up to 19 and I really want it to be either uh, it, it, I want it to be 1 through 20 I'm adding that one on now we'll do an if statement if if statements are very intuitive in Ruby I didn't even look it up I just did it uh, if space dice is less than so that's the angle bracket that points to the left 10 that's totally arbitrary i'm just giving the player a 50 50 chance of succeeding or failing on their spell casting then actually you know what we we could do well let's not get too fancy here i just it just occurred to me you could do like 10 plus your level and then you'd have like you know if you're if you're first level character you could have a 10 plus one chance so uh, sort of a a 55 percent chance of succeeding, and then at, you reach level 2 and suddenly you have 60% chance, you know, and so on. But anyway, I'm not I'm not gonna... we're not actually creating a game here, this is just an example. If dice is less than 10, then puts parentheses quote, your spell pops and fizzles, nothing happens, dot, close quote, close parentheses. Else puts parentheses quote, your spell does hash semicolon dice, not semicolon, sorry, curly brace dice close curly brace, space, damage, dot, close quote, close parentheses. And then end, and I'm going to comment it with an if, so that I know that that closes my if statement. And end again, with a comment telling it that it's closing the spellcast function. And then end with class comment already exists. Now I've got a new function in my class, but now I need to call it. I need to make it happen. So down here in my little test area, I'll do PC dot, and PC, again, remember, that's the name, that is the instance of this class, is what, as that's how they say it. They say that that is an instance of the class, meaning you created PC using the template that you wrote yourself of a class called Character. So PC.spellcast, so we're calling, we're calling the spellcasting ability from within the character template, or from within the character uh, um, instance of PC. And we'll give it a, let's have, well, let's do every single one, but let's do them in reverse. So we'll do, uh, well, actually, I just thought of something. But okay, so we'll do one, and then we'll do it again. PC.spellcast, parentheses, zero, close parentheses. So we're doing two of them. And rb you are Bob, a level one wizard. Your spells are, which I didn't actually write, but then there's a list of spells. Cantrip, chill touch, and detect undead You cast, chill touch. Your damage does 19 damage. Well, that did did a lot of damage. You cast cantrip. Your spell does 13 damage. Let's do it again. Let's see if we can get one of the... Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, Your bob again, blah, blah, blah. Uh, You cast chill touch. Your spell pops and fizzles. Nothing happens. Because that random number rolled under a 10 this time around. So, I think you're getting the idea, and you've gotten a little bit of an idea of the syntax of, of Ruby. And I think overall i think it's really nice there are lots of things in this that that remind me of lua in a really really great way and i think in in most ways comparisons to python are purely superficial again early on i feel like there was a positioning of ruby as maybe the other python and that made sense it makes sense to to sort of to 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 compare those two languages because they are relatively simple syntaxes and syntax, syntaxes Um they are they're largely sort of um, you know lots of lots of words rather than just a bunch of symbols and semicolons so it it has a search a certain natural read to it, but but it feels pretty different than Python most of the time. It feels flexible. It feels really uh, quite explicit, which is really really nice. I like that a lot. There's a lot of things in here that that there's not a whole lot of question about why you're you're doing something or or whether something you know will be a global variable or not. And and this obviously just touches on Ruby. I, I barely you know i haven't talked about a lot of things obviously um but but yeah this it's, it's really really nice and i've had a, a really fun time playing around with it and as i've said with pearl um before i i don't know i'm, I'm kind of thinking that ruby might be something i i try to investigate more in the future because it it i really did enjoy my time with it and and once again there there's a lot of gems out there um and and by that I mean modules for Ruby. They're called gems. So there are a lot of gems out there, and and that that makes a language quite appealing, when there's just a bunch of stuff that's already been done for you, and there's GUI toolkits and so on. So yeah, Ruby seems pretty nice. I mean, there's you know there's stuff that b- before I truly adopted it as as a language that I that I use, I would have to look into what's it you know how does it do for packaging what is it what what how does it deliver its code in the end how up to date are its gui toolkits is, are those are those still being maintained or has ruby fallen off enough to kind of whittle the the selection down uh, and i and either way that may not matter i mean depending on what you want to use ruby for but it is definitely a really nice language and you should try it out if you're looking for a, a nice structured explicit scripting language. Um, I I quite enjoyed it. Was very impressed by it. Didn't expect not to be, but I found, you know, I I found it to feel a lot less like Python than I would kind of anticipated, simply because that's how it had kind of been presented to me a long, long time ago. That's it. That's everything for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. We're getting very close to the end of the D for development section here. We're going to cover scons, slack track, strace, subversion. Oh, I thought I already did subversion. Swig and Yasm. And then that's it. No more D for development in the Slackware um, repository. We're on to the next grouping. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.